morning. It's not shutting off. I don't know. Well, who needs batteries, right? Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I got to admit, a uh, little disheartening, I don't know. Not disheartening, that's probably not the right word. Uh, everybody I've talked to this week, and reading the faces in first hour, when I say we're going to cover a chapter and a half of Acts today, everybody looks a little bit skeptical, like I can't do it. Uh, and I don't know what would give you that impression, uh, but uh, I think it's possible, and I think probably not only is it possible, but it, it's wise. I think, uh, you know, I... I guess my personality, uh, I'm kind of like a, let's dig into the verse and try to mine out everything that's there, but I think with this portion of Acts, uh, really some of the point of Stephen's sermons lost, if you don't kind of look at the whole thing, you know, like uh, lose the forest for the trees sort of situation. Uh, and I think a lot of the point that Stephen is making isn't so much any one of the particular instances uh, that he draws out in the sermon, but probably more uh, the themes that become evident over the course of the sermon. So it is a lot of ground to cover in one Sunday, but I would like to read uh, the entirety of Stephen's sermon and then kind of think through together some of the things that are uh, evident kind of thematically over the contours of the sermon. And so uh, today we'll start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, where Luke will kind of set up for us what prompts uh, Stephen's sermon uh, and then Stephen's response in the situation. Uh, if you are, are, weren't with us last week, remember, or, uh, I'll note that Stephen was uh, just appointed as a deacon of the church, part of his ministry. In that role was administering the service of tables uh, or helping get food to people who needed food. But apparently between Acts verse 7 and Acts verse 8, Stephen's ministry had grown to the point, well, he was certainly still doing what they'd asked him to do. Uh, apparently he was doing far more than that. And so Luke kind of picks up in verse 8, characterizing what Stephen's ministry had kind of grown to at this point. We read, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will ch change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen responded, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father had died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and, this, and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, and God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out his, <coughs> our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another in Egypt over another king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, the voice, uh, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. 
the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to an idol and were rejoicing in the words of their hands. The works of their hands. And God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You who you took up the tent of Molech, and the star of your God Raphan, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. Our fathers had a tent in the wilderness, a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed them to make it according to the pattern that had been he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we... Pray that as we uh, turn to this text this morning, and that you would humble our hearts, and you would give us uh, you would give us the strength to uh, consider all things God, not as we see them, but as you see them. God, that you would work powerfully by your Spirit to. Uh, 
Help us to see sin for what it is and that you would give us uh, the wisdom to turn from it and turn towards Christ always and that uh, we would be continually conformed to the image of Christ in still greater ways. And that, uh, that as our minds are renewed by the power of your word and your spirit, and that our hearts likewise would be conformed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would be glorified in our midst, God, as the truths that we sing increasingly become true of our hearts as well. And we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So, uh, Stephen uh, is going to reintroduce to us as a guy that seems a little bit more like the apostles. Remember, uh, he was appointed to administer the tables, but the Stephen that we quickly get to know uh, is a, a man who is clearly full of the Holy Spirit, uh, not just doing signs and wonders, but clearly articulating the gospel as he's given opportunity. Uh, yet, uh, at the same time uh, that this is happening, another group in Jerusalem has become irritated uh, by seemingly Stephen particularly. And Luke doesn't really ex explain what it is that Stephen does to irritate this group, but I think it's probably reasonable to assume that uh, the, the synagogue of the freedmen are Hellenists, people that uh, are Jewish ethnically, but grew up outside of Jerusalem, and uh, you know they're they're first Greek speakers, and so they've kind of gathered together in Jerusalem in this synagogue of people whose native language is Greek, uh, but they see Stephen, also a Hellenist, uh, articulating the gospel, ministering in the church, doing signs and wonders, and probably assume that. Uh, if everybody sees a Hellenist doing this stuff, then there's probably some guilt for us by association. So Stephen needs to go, right? And their first approach uh, seems to be just to try to make him look foolish. They're going to debate with him, prove to him that he doesn't, prove to everyone that he doesn't know what they, he's talking about. So as they have opportunity, they try to uh, dispute with Stephen uh, but quickly realized that that is not going to work. God has filled him with wisdom. He is speaking by the Spirit. They are, are not winning these debates, I assume, I guess, that the exact opposite was happening. Stephen was clearly demonstrating the wisdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and being frustrated in their attempt to discredit Stephen, they come up with an alternate plan. Uh, rather than debating with him publicly, they are secretly instigating people right, like with malicious intent. They're going to try to get some people to bear false witness against, against Stephen, pick up some of the things that Jesus of Nazareth said about uh, the temple and the law of Moses, and maybe they're kind of putting words in Stephen's mouth a bit, but they're going to accuse Stephen before the Sanhedrin of what everyone would have considered blasphemy, speaking against the temple 
and the law, right? If we can't get rid of Stephen, we'll get the Sanhedrin to do our dirty work for us, and all we need to do is tell a few lies about him. And so, uh, marching forward with this plan, uh, Stephen is arraigned before the Sanhedrin for blasphemy, and uh, he stands before Sanhedrin, and, and after the two incidents, three incidents with Peter and John and the apostles, I would think if I was a member of Sanhedrin and I saw a guy, guy transfigured in front of me with a face like an angel, I would think, uh-oh, the next 15 minutes are not going to go real well. Uh, but uh, Stephen stands before them and the high priest does his job. He says, all right, this is what you've been accused of. Defend yourself. Uh, what do you have to say to these charges? And uh, Stephen... Uh, of course, responds. That's most of the rest of our text today. But I think uh, we would be wise, probably, uh, if uh, we understand uh, the Word of God to be uh, always relevant and uh, given by God to expose our own hearts to us, to pause for a second and think about, like, what exactly would we do if we were Stephen in these circumstances? Right? Like, if, if I was Stephen, uh, and I had a growing ministry in the Jerusalem church, and God was obviously working through me, presumably people are coming to Christ as a result of Stephen's ministry, and these uh, people that uh, you know, I'd had some interaction with, had it out for me, and uh, were telling essentially lies about me, bearing false witness about me in front of the Sanhedrin, I would think probably at that point that I think, well, I should defend myself. I don't think that I would back away from anything that I'd said. I think if I'd said it in public, I'd say it again before the Sanhedrin, but I'd definitely try to defend myself. You know, when I said uh, this about the temple, what I didn't mean is that, and they're telling you I meant that, I did not mean that. That uh, I, would, I would try to seek my own vindication. Uh, and I'd probably tell myself that it didn't have anything to do with my pride that I was seeking my vindication. It had to do with me continuing to minister in the church of God, right? Because, like, ministry is going really well. If the Sanhedrin finds me guilty of blasphemy, absolute best case scenario is I'm going to jail, most likely they're going to kill me, uh, right? Like, the, depending on how I play my cards at this point, this is the end of my earthly ministry, and it's unjust that these charges have been brought against me. And certainly, the situation is that. It's unjust that people falsely bore witness against Stephen, and in one sense, I think Stephen could rightly pursue his own vindication at this point. So, if you were in Stephen's shoes, would you defend yourself? Like, and, and if so, I think probably like me, you'd say, well, it, it wouldn't really have to do with my pride. It would have to do what's, with what's right. It's not right that people would bear false witness and want justice to be done. And then as you read the rest of what happens in this instance pretty quickly realized that that's definitely not what Stephen does. He does not pursue his own vindication. In fact, 
uh, everything that he says, I'm sure he knew would incense the Sanhedrin. And he very cleverly does it in a, in a, a particular way. Right? He, he begins recounting their history, and they wouldn't have disagreed with any of the historical facts that Stephen shares. Right? At no point uh, would they say, hey, wait, 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 that's not what happened. But as he's relating particular incidents from the history of Israel, like a narrative arc kind of emerges, actually two, I'd say, narrative arcs, kind of emerge over the course of the sermon where, like, by the time he's getting two-thirds of the way through, they're all thinking, uh-oh, this is what we were worried about, right? Uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, give them enough rope to hang themselves, right? Like, that's what Stephen does. Like, they, they let him go on, and they let him go on, and he would, they wouldn't have disagreed with anything that he says. But at a certain point in the sermon, it becomes very clear what he's really saying. So I'd like to walk through the text here and not necessarily uh, rehash the history of Israel, because I think probably most of you are very familiar with it, but look at the, the, why he's making the points that he's making. Uh, he begins incredibly respectfully. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Brothers would be other guys in the room. Fathers, the Sanhedrin. Like he's very deferential to the Sanhedrin, and he notice he'll always include himself, at least at the beginning, with we us. Like he is part of the heritage of Israel, uh, and he points out that look, we 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 got our start with Abraham, and God's faithfulness is clearly demonstrated through the story of Abraham. God made these promises to Abraham of which we are the inheritors, including the promise of a land. Yet, even as we follow Abraham's story, we note that while God's hand of blessing was always upon Abraham, the land was kind of a foreign thing to Abraham. He didn't receive the promise of God in the sense that he inherited the land that God promised. It became clear to him that that was for his descendants. Yet, even as he did not directly inherit the land, he still experienced God's blessing. And with that, maybe opening the crack in the door to say that you can be very blessed by God without being in the land. And he goes on to point out that, uh, in fact, uh, like our people, uh, no sojourn. And this sojourn, uh, in one sense, is God's discipline, but in another sense, we can see was God's plan. God very clearly told us to expect this sojourning and that ultimately he would right the wrongs done to us by those who do us evil, yet uh, as much as we can say that God wants us to worship him in this place, we were very much able to worship God in another place. A person doesn't have to be in this place to worship God. And moreover, God gave us uh, signs of this covenant with us. He gave Abraham descendants, descendants that ultimately inherit the promise. But even as he's doing all this, we have another patriarch in Joseph. And Joseph uh, is going to illustrate something even more 
clearly that uh, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, sold into Egypt, and ultimately God works through Joseph's circumstances to put Joseph in a situation where he is able to save our fathers uh, who were facing certain death apart from Joseph. Joseph went into the land, uh, went into Egypt. God provided through Joseph, and ultimately Joseph was the salvation for our people, though he was initially rejected by God's people. And uh, I would think probably that most of the people listening at this point in the sermon didn't really realize what it was that uh, Stephen was going to be pointing out, but the, the theme will quickly develop that God's people have a history of rejecting those whom God sends. And specifically, in the case of Joseph and Moses, those whom God sends specifically to deliver his people. And that was clear in the story of Jacob, and then he kind of folds the idea of the land back into this, pointing out that even in the story of Joseph with Jacob's death, Jacob doesn't go back to, in death, doesn't go back to the land that you are considering the land. Jacob is buried in Shechem. He's buried in the land of the Samaritans. That God's people uh, are inheritors of the promise to the land, but God's people can serve and worship God apart from the land. That God's purpose is evident whether his people are in the land or out of the land. And again, out of the land we saw uh, God's deliverance and then ultimately another cycle of judgment where a new king arose and God's people were facing unimaginably horrible circumstances. Yet even in those circumstances, God again was preparing deliverance, this time in the person Moses. That Moses uh, was in a sense, prepared by God for deliverance. And when Moses sought to deliver God's people, God's people ultimately reject him as well. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That uh, as Moses was coming with the intent to deliver, God's people reject him. And so leaving the land, it seems the story ends, but then God specifically calls Moses back to Egypt to be the deliverance of God's people from slavery. And even as he relates this story, he makes it a point to mention that Moses was not in Israel, and he certainly wasn't in the temple, yet he heard from God, take the shoes off your feet, the place where you are standing is holy ground. That, that the temple is holy because God is there. Anywhere God is, is holy. But uh, Moses responds to the call of God <clears throat> to respond to the people in affliction in Egypt. And again, uh, they reject Moses, even as he is performing signs and wonders amongst them, delivering them out of slavery. There is a spirit of uh, 
rejection evident among God's people. And note, I think, in verses 35 through 38, the way he's relating Moses' story and the similarity between the language he's choosing to relate Moses' story and the, similar, or the, the words that the, cho- the church was choosing to communicate truth about Jesus Christ, right? Moses is called specifically a ruler and redeemer. Another way you could translate is that ruler and savior by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of slavery, performing signs and wonders just like Jesus, the guy you guys just killed. Uh, God, or Moses promised that uh, this prophet, like Moses, would be coming up. Even the way he says in verse 38, the congregation in the wilderness or the assembly, that's what They've been, Jesus said, I'll build my assembly. They've been calling themselves the assembly, right? Like, uh, I think he's very clearly drawing some parallel here between Israel in the wilderness and the church of Jesus Christ. And he received living, the living word or living oracles to give to us. And even as God was doing all of this through the person Moses, our fathers refused to obey him. They put him aside. They returned in a spirit of slavery to Egypt. In fact, they went out of their way to seek idols. They begged Aaron to build the golden calf. As the years go on, they turn to unimaginable idols. Molech, of all people, of all idols. That our people have a long history with idolatry. And still... Uh, God's presence was evident among us, first in the tabernacle, but then ultimately in the building of the temple. And even as we can be thankful that God gave us this temple, uh, we should remember that God has clearly said that he is not localized to a place, that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He made all things. He is everywhere. That God cannot be contained to a place. And at that point, uh, he, if if you're wondering, like, yeah, are they picking up on all this? Right? Like, he he makes the conclusion for them. He switches from uh, we, us, to you, and says very flatly, you stiff-necked people. Right? There are two roads. He, ha- he had been including himself on the path with them, like we are Israel, and at the point of Jesus Christ, there's a fork. And he's saying, I've gone this way, and you are going that way. You stiff-necked people. You are continuing on the same path that our people have always been on, pursuing idols, turning away from the Lord. You are the inheritors of a a legacy of idolatry and refusing to accept God's deliverance, refusing to accept God's prophets, that that is evidenced clearly in your rejection and murder of Jesus Christ. And, of course, they hear this and are absolutely incensed. In fact, next week we'll read about how they stone Stephen. He, he dies for this. He, and I, in one sense, I'd say, uh, and this is the longest sermon recorded in Acts, in one sense, I'd say, like, 
We don't ever get to see the end of it because of their response to him saying this. In another sense, I, I kind of doubt that he thought he would get much beyond verse 53 before what happens, happens. Uh, and what do you make of that? You know, this guy uh, is forced into a situation where he has to choose, uh, you know, am I going to try to seek my own vindication, or am I going to take this opportunity to clearly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who obviously don't yet know him, even if it means I'm forfeiting my life? And uh, he chooses to forfeit his life. He chooses to clearly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ at the cost of his life. And I think that reveals a couple things to us. Number one, uh, the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Stephen's chief concern. Right? If the preservation of his life were his chief concern, uh, he wouldn't have done this. Uh, but more than that, uh, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is his chief concern, could still, and in a way we've already talked about, ultimately be kind of twisted into a, I'm going to seek my vindication here because I want 30 more years of ministry sort of thinking. Uh, but that's not what he does either. He looks at the Sanhedrin. These guys that Peter and John have stood before, the apostles have stood before, the guys that they all know are seeking to stop the church. And he could very well convince himself, I think very easily convince himself, that these people are too far gone. That they have hardened their hearts in sin to the point that they are beyond the grace of Jesus Christ and any interaction with them is futile. I want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advance, but this isn't the room that it's going to happen in. And that's not the decision that he makes. He looks at these people who have obviously hardly set themselves against the church of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't see the faces of people who cannot be saved by Jesus Christ. Instead, he sees an opportunity that he's going to take to again preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who've already rejected it time and time again. Right? That he chooses to forfeit his life for the opportunity to preach the gospel even to people that he probably thinks are ultimately going to reject it, barring the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And to the degree that we let ourselves think that there are people that are too far gone for Jesus Christ to save, I think we should absolutely be rebuked by what Stephen does here. That there are no people that are beyond the grace of God in Jesus Christ. None. That Stephen's actions demonstrate that he believes that's the case. And Stephen's example should absolutely, I think, motivate us towards the same frame of mind. That any opportunity that we have to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, even with people that we would assume for some reason are beyond the grace of Jesus Christ, for whatever reason, we should take it, regardless of the cost. And I think that's the easy work of the passage. That, that, uh, that it's 
the easy work is always to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero and say, what, what, what mindset or what actions here are evidence that I should emulate? The harder part, I think, in this case, is wondering, uh, are there things evident in the Sanhedrin that are true of my heart too? And I think it's peripheral to the point of the passage, but I think that we would be remiss if we walked past that question and not answer it. You look at Stephen's sermon, right? That there, there are a couple things evident. Number one, very explicit, kind of hard to miss, is the charge of outright idolatry. Like there are times in our past as a people where there has been unapologetic, unabashed pursuit of idol worship, and we should not forget that. We shouldn't overlook it, and uh, you're going to be confronted with it. And I think if, uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, that probably uh, every single one of us could, see, could say that we've had seasons or are now in a season where there is unabashed idol worship. Whatever the thing is, it doesn't really matter. Whether it's uh, financial security, success in my career, my children's achievements, uh, youth sports, the, the perfect yard, right? Like we, we make crazy things idols all the time. Uh, like we, we could go on for the rest of the day and not exhaust the list of things that we've all made idols. And I think that it's very, very easy to read a passage like this and kind of beat our chests and say, thank God I'm not like those people. Uh, but in love, we need to be confronted with the fact that we are often these people. And, you know, I mentioned that because I think in this passage, and maybe in this passage alone in Acts, there's uh, probably a more insidious form of idolatry, right? We all know that we're guilty of that kind of idolatry, but uh, there's another kind of idolatry that's a little bit harder to spot, and it is one of the points of Stephen's sermon. And I think we need to be acutely aware of the fact that uh, we, we would all say that we know that we're struggling with idolatry because we struggle with outright idolatry, and most of us are entirely unaware of the fact that we struggle with this other kind because we don't even know that we do. It's not a struggle. We just live in it like it's water and we're fish. And that is, they had picked up good things, God-given things, the land, the temple, God's promise to his people. And they had made the things that God gave them their identity rather than their relationship with God itself. Right? They had boxed themselves into thinking that if you don't worship in the temple, it's not real worship. If we don't have the land, we can't be the people of God. They had taken things that God meant as blessings for his people and treated those blessings as if they were God himself. And 
That is what I mean when I say there is a, a type of idolatry that's truly insidious, but I think it, it also uh, demonstrates to us the degree to which our hearts are truly depraved, because we do the exact same thing all the time. We pick up good things, God-given things, things that ought to be blessings, and we treat those things as if they're God himself. Certainly with our family, but even in our church. Right? Like, tell me truly that never uh, in the course of a week or a month or some other time, uh, have you ever uh, thought or acted like uh, something that we do together as a people, some part of our identity, like God's will just couldn't happen apart from that thing. Right? Like uh, 20 years ago, it was dinners for eight, and now it might be small groups or Stephen's ministry or worship team or Awana or children's church or any one of a hundred other things. Like we often conduct ourselves like uh, God's will can't happen apart from our thing. Right? We make our thing God. That is idolatry. And I'm not telling you that any one of those things is a bad thing. In fact, I think all of them are good things and ought to be part of our life as a church. What I'm telling you is the degree to which we need Jesus Christ is evidenced to us by the fact that we can take things that God gives or things that accomplish God's purpose and somehow make those things out to be God himself. And how evil would we have to be for that to be true, and yet we do it all the time? That when, when you read Stephen's sermon and you, I think, understand what it is that Stephen is saying, uh, like that God's people constantly struggle with idolatry, that our, our hearts are factories of idols, constantly churning it out, 24-7. As soon as you find and expose an idol, your heart is already busily making another. That uh, Stephen certainly wouldn't have said that he is any different, but that fork in the road, what divides Stephen from these other people, is Stephen is ready to recognize an idol, to turn it over to Christ, walk in repentance and faith, and then take every opportunity he has to articulate that gospel to the people around him. And so, it's very much my hope that we, as a people, uh, don't display the kind of uh, hubris that God's people often display. And I cluck our tongues and thank God that we're not like those other guys. Like that we are ready to recognize always that we've done as bad and worse. And at the same time that we recognize that we've done more than we could possibly com comprehend, which requires repenting, eagerly turn to Christ in grace, always knowing that He freely forgives anyone who turns to Him. 
And that when that is evident among us, when that heart of repentance and faith is evident among us, I think one of the things that naturally flows out of it, uh, that is an eagerness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who do not yet know him. And with, with good news like that, how could we not? Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you uh, for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. God, we pray uh, as painful as it might be that you would continually uh, give us uh, greater understanding of the ways in which our hearts have been twisted by sin, God, that we would uh, eagerly receive the light of the gospel, exposing any and every idol, and that we would be quick to root these things out, to surrender them to you, God, knowing that you have borne the weight of sin in Christ, and that you have paid the penalty for sin, and God, now call us as sons and daughters to be people of faith, walking uh, in the grace of Jesus Christ, freed in the grace of Jesus Christ. And God, that we would use the freedom that you've bought for us always to press forward, God, to expound the gospel of Jesus Christ for others, to call others to repentance and faith. And we pray that you would continually do this amongst us by the power of your Spirit and for your glory. God, that we uh, may continually be transformed uh, into the image of Christ for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Pastor Dean. Asked uh, Pastor Dean to come back, and he, uh, he said he would rush back today, but there are no roads open between here and Hickman, so I didn't know if he'd make it. Uh, but asked Pastor, Pastor Dean to share some words with us and encourage us in how we can pray for the plant going forward. Dean?
found care and carefulness in walking with my family through some difficulty. And I have heart, heartfelt love and appreciation for these brothers and many of you. Uh, this is all coming out wrong. Um, so I think I just want to say thank you. I want to say please don't forget about us. Please be praying for us. Please pray for wisdom. Um, we are faced with challenges that we didn't see coming. Please pray for wisdom. Um, please pray for contacts. The more and more we meet people, please pray that God would open their hearts to uh, build relationships, open their hearts to the gospel, open their hearts to Christ. Um, and I wanted to um, share with you some blessings. Um, we, um, we're sealing the deal with the theater, so that's where we've been meeting, and that's been wrapping up. Um, and the Lord has provided through one of our other partner churches um, money to pay for rent for the theater, money to pay for office space over there. So I just want you to know, like, you're not alone in supporting us. God is providing. And so I want to encourage you with what's happening. I think that's, that's the two messages I'm trying to say is thank you, and God is moving. And don't forget about us for next week. I think I should stop while I'm behind. I love you all so, so much, Pastor Brad. Uh, Faith Bible has uh, joined us, uh, indicated they want to partner with us in planting Redemption Hill. Uh, so, uh, as it, you have friends at uh, Faith Bible or uh, you know, interact with people from Faith, please uh, express your appreciation to them. I, they uh, incredibly blessed to partner with them as a church to see this happen, but I just I'd just like to pray over you real quick. Please, thank you. Yeah. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, Dean. God, I thank you for uh, the years of uh, the privilege you've had to, to walk alongside each other, to serve together. God, I thank you for the ways in which you've equipped him and the team for this work. And Lord, we pray that even as uh, plans finish drawing together this week, God, that you would give he uh, and uh, the team endurance for this uh, last lap before public services, God, that you give them wisdom uh, as they look forward, and God, that even now you would be working in the hearts of people uh, in the Norris area, God, that you would use uh, Redemption Hill to display the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, and to call them uh, to Christ, and that others who do not yet know you would uh, come to faith in Christ, 
as they see uh, the Spirit at work in the church in their community. And we pray, uh, God, that you would bless Dean and the team mightily. And God, we pray that uh, the displays of your grace and the power of your gospel in the weeks and months to come would be uh, a strengthening encouragement to them. And God, we pray that uh, you would help them to know that uh, they have our affection and that they have our prayers and that uh, it is with uh, joy that we look forward to walking alongside another sister church to see the progress of the gospel in our area. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Dean. Our doxology today is Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.